You guys can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's going to be uh, our primary text, at least where we start anyway. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as you guys find your spot there, we'll be in the back half of that chapter, as you guys find your spot, I want to ask you a question. What is the best meal you have ever had? What is the, and I know it's a dangerous question to ask at church, like, you guys are already thinking about Elsa's on, I know, and if that's the best meal you've ever had, we need to talk, but um, what is the single meal that if you could have it again, you would jump at the chance right now, and you would be like, yes, that is what I want. That is the place I want to be. That's the, that is it. Now, when I ask that question, some of you immediately will go to some elite restaurant that is really expensive, where you've had a really, really nice meal, where you've had some really good food. Emily and I have had a chance to eat at some pretty cool places. Uh, we've gotten to eat in New York City a couple of times at, uh, like, 80 some odd stories up above New York City and Rockefeller uh, Center when we've gone there uh, to, to New York a couple of times. And uh, we've had a chance to eat in Charleston at the restaurant of some James Beard Award winners, some amazing food that we had at those places. Some of you guys would be able to talk about a similar uh, kind of restaurant that you've been to that's like this once in a lifetime, we get to eat at this place, and this is amazing. Others will jump at the way that the meal tasted. We've had uh, the, 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 the nice restaurant way up high in New York, but we've also eaten uh, in Chinatown and at a place uh, uh, in New York called Tasty Hand-Pulled Noodles that was like this little bowl of deliciousness that Emily and I would both say uh, is probably the best meal that we've ever eaten. It will set your mouth on fire when you eat it, but it was amazing. And so some of you guys have some sort of a, uh, a meal like that that is, uh, that, is, that is just delicious. My favorite, personally, if you can find a good shrimp and grits, that's going to be what I'm going to go for for my meal where I just need to eat. So I rank my best, my best meals on who has the best shrimp and grits. Uh, that's what that's what I love. Uh, for some of you others, it's going to be uh, the the perfect kind of steak, maybe from uh, Rouge Chris or from Fleming's or from uh, some other place that you've had this amazing steak that's just, just just perfect. Or maybe it's the steak from your own grill because you don't trust anyone to do it as well as you can do it because you are the grill master and that is going to be your favorite meal, the steak you prepare on your own grill. Or maybe for some of you guys, it's that secret recipe uh, uh, for that special dish, for that mac and cheese at Mamaw's house, or uh, maybe for that, that perfect type of, um, that, that perfect meal that you, you're, you, you still want to get the secret recipe uh, from your grandmother, and that is the meal that you go to in your mind. That is your favorite meal. So sometimes it's the comfort food that we want more than it is the expensive stuff. Some of you guys will, will take the, the location into consideration or, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it is like a nice meal in some big city or maybe it's the, the s'mores that you eat over a campfire at the campground, depending on what your, uh, what your taste is and the things that you like. And it's the location that reminds you of things. Uh, but maybe it's just about who the meal is with. It's who you have the meal with. It's just 
uh, it, it, it's just that chance to have one more meal with a loved one that you can no longer have. It's the meal together on a first date or the first meal that you have together with your spouse after you've been married. Or perhaps it's uh, the, the, that meal that, uh, where the, the, f- the food doesn't stand out, but the company does. The people with you uh, does. You're gathered around a table laughing, having a good time, toasting to one another, and enjoying life together. All of those things are things that factor into how we would decide what the single best meal we have ever had is. And I'll be honest with you, I could not figure out what it is for me because all of these things are part of the criteria. And I'll bet that almost none of you, maybe one or two that have been like uh, in, in some very specific situations, but I'm going to bet almost none of you, when you thought about what your favorite meal is, you thought about one that you had alone. It's probably one that you had with someone else. And it's who you shared that table with that helped make it so, so memorable for you. Mealtimes have a way of evoking some deep and profound emotions in us. From the comfort of that that, that special dish from your grandmother to the deep laughter of friends around a dinner table to the beauty of a couple having a meal by a fireside. Meals are built to bring out our emotions. And they are built to bring us together. They have the unique ability to open our hearts and to raise our spirits. And they can leave indelible marks on us throughout our lifetime. So what is that one meal for you. Whatever that meal is that you just thought of as I asked you that question, whatever that one meal is that you have in mind, I wonder if any of you would would consider this meal here to be that meal for you. The Lord's Supper, if that would be among the best meals you have ever had. I'm going to guess no. I'm going to guess no, perhaps because you don't think of these little crackers and juice, you don't really think of those as a meal, perhaps because you know those don't taste very good. Uh, And so that doesn't quite make it up on the best meal that you've ever had. I get that. But I also wonder if it's because this meal doesn't really mean all that much to us. It's kind of just a thing that we do at church. If we were to stop doing it and never bring it back, many of you probably wouldn't even notice, at least not for a long, long time. If that's you, and I'm guessing that's going to be most of you, My hope is that this morning we'll begin to kind of fill in what is lacking behind these elements that we see here. We'll begin the process of changing uh, your mind. And my hope is that this meal, uh, after today's sermon and going forward from what we do here at Providence, that this meal is not just a thing, but instead it becomes an essential part of your growing in grace and understanding how the gospel works in your life. Now, last week we talked about one big aspect of the meal and what this meal is doing. It's rehearsing a story for us. It's telling a story of a, uh, of a God who has been faithful, of, of his son, of sending his son who died, who rose again, and who is coming back again. And we rehearse that story every time that we come to the table. And this morning I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I kind of want to build on that just a little bit and maybe fill in some of the other gaps that have been Uh, left for many of us when we talk about the Lord's Supper. And as we read in 1 Corinthians 11, we're glimpsed into how the Lord's Supper happened in the earliest days of the church. 
as Paul gives these instructions. Now, I'm going to read a big chunk here, and then I'm going to come back and pull out some pieces of it. So just hang with me as we read through this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That is not a good way to start if you're a church. It's better off if you all don't get together at all. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe, it, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, have, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you were weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may, be, we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So Paul lays out all these things that he's heard about the church in Corinth. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, this is just a, one of many things that he has held against them, that he has come uh, really to kind of crack the whip and tell them, get with it, you guys are completely missing what you're supposed to be doing. So when Paul writes here, he minces no words. He has, to, he has to deal with some very big problems, and he has to deal with them directly and quickly. One of the main problems he has to deal with is the way that they take the Lord's Supper. I want to kind of highlight a few things that he points out and that he brings out. First, it says it would be better if they didn't come together at all, if this is what it's going to look like. That is a strong condemnation. And what was happening is that the church would gather uh, at whatever time would work. Remember, they didn't have the rhythms that we have right now of a weekend, of a free Sunday morning to come together. You know, that's one of the things I think is funny. People talk about not coming to church on Sunday mornings because they value their Sunday mornings for rest, and it's such a big part of their weekend and things like that. The early church didn't even get that. In order for them to come together on the Lord's Day, it was often going to be after work. It was going to be uh, after uh, they, they were finished with the things that they had done for the day, especially if they were lower class because they would be working class or even slaves. They had to take care of their work for the day and then come together in the evening. They would have given anything to have the entire day off to be able to gather with God's people, but they didn't have that luxury. They didn't have that right. Instead, what they had to do is they had to work. 
And so what was happening is those that were more well-to-do, those that had a little bit more money, they would have more, uh, more free time. They would have the day off. And they would gather together earlier in the day. And they would start eating. And they would start having a full meal. And they would go ahead and get started at you know, whatever time, 4 or 5 o'clock, and they would, they would get everything taken care of. Well, by the time that the rest of the church was able to join them, they were full. They were done. They had had a full meal, and they were, they were drunk because they had been drinking the wine all day long. And so what would happen is these lower-class people would then start showing up. These slaves would start showing up, and there would be this clear division between those that have and those that have not. And there would be this clear division between those that, were, uh, that, 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 had, been, uh, that had the means and the time to be able to eat and drink all day long. Whereas the slaves and the lower class would come together and it would be all they could do to be able to get the bread and the wine. And so there was these huge divisions and, and these fractures that were beginning to happen in the church. So Paul says this is exactly the wrong thing that should be happening here. Because what should be happening is you guys should be coming together, but instead the divisions are beginning to to form. And it's beginning to form along typically social classes. Typically along those who had and those who did not have. So the oneness that should be produced by the Lord's Supper was the exact opposite thing that was happening when they would take it. And Paul sees this as a huge problem. He sees this as a massive problem. Because instead of coming together to celebrate their unity, they were causing strife and division. He says to the point, what you guys are doing, maybe you rehearse the words, maybe you guys say this or you say that, but it's not even the Lord's Supper anymore at this point. You guys are just coming together and getting drunk. That's really all you're doing. It's not even the Lord's Supper that you're doing. So Paul says, you guys have got to use this the way that it was meant to be used. Which brings me to a bit of a side, a side thing here, but I want to address a few questions as we go through this. Paul calls this the Lord's Supper. But maybe you've heard this also called communion. Or maybe you've heard it, heard, heard it called something else if you come from a more liturgical and formal tradition called the Eucharist. And it's like, are those all the same thing? Are those different things? What, what are those things? All three of those things refer to the same thing. All three, the Lord's Supper, communion, and the Eucharist. Communion talks about the common bond between believers and the common bond that we have with Jesus. And so what, what, whenever we use the word communion, what we're talking about is what happens or what should happen when we come together and take the Lord's Supper. Communion should be formed. We'll talk more about that here in a few minutes. But communion should be formed. So you're talking about what should happen whenever we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the actual thing. Uh, It's the thing instituted by Jesus during the Last Supper. So the Lord's Supper is the actual thing. It's what Paul calls it uh, here in 1 Corinthians. He calls it the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist comes from the verb to give thanks. And so this comes from, uh, from the, the text in many of the Gospels and from Paul here where it says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and on from there. So they just take the very beginning of how the Lord's Supper begins, give thanks, and they call it the Eucharist. So it's what, what's happening 
in the midst of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. So all three are perfectly, uh, perfectly uh, acceptable to be able to use. They all kind of uh, talk about a different kind of nuance of it or a different way of looking at it, but all three work. Here we're probably going to use communion and the Lord's Supper. We'll probably use those more than the Eucharist because that has a little bit more of a, a Catholic background to it that, that we don't want to ascribe to it, but uh, it would work as well. So all three of those work. All three refer to the same thing. And Paul is making the point here as he reads through this that communion should be the outworking of what happens with the Lord's Supper. But instead, the opposite is happening. Instead of communion, it's disunity that is happening. So Paul issues this warning. He says, be careful what you're doing because this could go very, very bad for you. So much so that as they know, some have died in this practice. Now that gets your attention real quick if you're reading through this, right? Like, this isn't Paul issuing some kind of vague warning. He's saying, as you guys know, some of y'all have died. And they, like, if this is being read to the church at Corinth, they would have been looking around like, yeah, you remember, you remember Bobby, right? Like, that was rough. Like, that's how the conversation would have gone. Like, they knew exactly what Paul was talking about whenever that happened. They knew exactly what he was saying. It's pretty crazy whenever you read that kind of stuff. My assumption here is that alcohol and being drunk played a pretty firm role in this. But honestly, we don't know. We don't know if this is like an Ananias, Sapphira type thing where just all of a sudden they fell down dead at the feet as they were sitting there taking the, the, the food and the drink. There's no indication that that happened, but there's also no indication that that didn't happen. Just know that some people died. So my assumption is that's tied to the alcohol consumption that's happening and all that happens when you get drunk uh, and all the bad things that go along with that, but we don't really know. But the point that Paul wants to make is that you've got to take this seriously because if you don't, there are repercussions. And so you should examine yourself. Now, for a lot of people, if you uh, grew up in church, you get really hung up on this whenever Paul says, don't take it in an unworthy manner, but instead examine yourself. And so what happens is you start thinking, and you start thinking, well, wait a minute. When it says unworthy, I'm unworthy. I know I'm unworthy. I am a sinner. I deal with these things. I yelled at my kids this morning. I yelled at my wife this week. I can't come and take the Lord's Supper because I might fall down and die. And that's going to be really disruptive for the church service. So I'm not going to go and do that. So I, it, it scares a lot of people away from taking the Lord's Supper in the first place. And you say, well, I'm not going to go take that because I know that I'm not worthy. Listen, if taking the Lord's Supper is dependent upon you being worthy to take the Lord's Supper, we should all remain seated and these elements should never be touched. Because none of us are worthy to come and take the Lord's Supper. And that is not Paul's point. When he's talking about being unworthy, he's talking about the worth of the elements and what they represent, not the worth of the individual taking it. Now, I know that that's a small distinction, but it's a distinction with a big difference. And listen, if you're that person who says, I'm so worried about my sin, I'm so aware of my sin, I'm so cond under condemnation for my sin and dealing with it that I can't come and take the Lord's Supper because I think it would be, uh, I would be unworthy to take it, let me just tell you, you are the exact person who is ready to take the Lord's Supper. 
you are exactly the person who is ready to come. That's exactly how Paul would tell you. That's how you should come. Aware of your sin. Dealing with your sin. Working through your sin. So who should not take of this? If Paul is saying that somebody should not take of the elements, it's those that would take of the elements in an unworthy manner. It's those who have no awareness of their sin. It's those that have no conviction of their sin. It's those that, that, that have no sense of who they are before God, their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. It's those that have not, nor do they ever intend to, confess their sins. It's those that indulge in and celebrate their sin. These are the ones who should not take the Lord's Supper. Because those are the ones that would be taking it in an unworthy manner. Not because they are, they are inherently unworthy, but because they do not understand the worth of what they are doing. And they do not understand the worth of what these elements represent. They are flippant, and they do not hold the death and the sacrifice of Jesus as precious above all else. So they come, and they take the elements, and their mind and their heart are everywhere but on the cross. That is the unworthy manner. And it's why we would say only Christians should come and take the Lord's Supper. You cannot come and reflect on the salvation for your sin if you have not submitted yourself to Christ and received that salvation and forgiveness for your sin. You can't do that. So we would say only those who follow Christ and who are Christians should come and take the Lord's Supper. That's exactly why it's called fencing the table is kind of the the jargon for it. That's exactly why we would do this every time that we take the Lord's Supper. We fence the table, say, this is for Christians and those who follow Christ only. But if you are here and you have confessed your sins and you are a follower of Christ and you are aware of your unworthiness to come and take the flesh and the blood of Christ, then these elements are just for you. Think about this for a second. Think about what it is you're doing when you take the Lord's Supper. What do these elements represent? They represent the means by which you are made holy. They are not themselves the means by which you are made holy. They represent the means by which you're made holy. Which, another aside, I told you I'm going to try to address some asides here. A Catholic understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper would be different than ours. A Catholic understanding would be that when you take these elements of the Lord's Supper, it is the thing that makes you holy. It would be the equivalent of taking a pill. It doesn't matter whether you believe in a pill or not. If you take the pill, it's going to work, whether you believe in it or not. But that's not how Paul or anywhere in Scripture talks about the Lord's Supper. Nowhere. Instead, what they talk about is you are coming to partake in the sacrifice of Christ because of what these things represent. They represent the means by which you are made holy. They are representatives of the elements that God has determined to make you clean. Listen, there's nothing special about these things. I bought them off of Amazon. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing special about them that will, that will make you holy. But it is what they represent that is what saves you. The blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, wait guys. Don't do this individually. 
Don't start in the middle of the afternoon and get yourself drunk by the time the rest of the church shows up. Wait for everybody else. Because this is about communion. This is about what we have with one another. This is about who we are together in Christ. This is not about what makes us different. It's about what makes us together as one. So let's consider all that Paul says here. He clearly sees that the Lord's Supper plays a big role in teaching and unifying the believers in Corinth. But he doesn't see it as this magic pill, this magic thing to kind of make everyone better, make everyone holy. He doesn't see it as working that way. He sees there's a right way and a wrong way to do it, though. Doing it wrongly, doing it incorrectly, I don't know, wrongly, is that a right word? Doing it incorrectly is, is of no value, but doing it highly, carry, or doing it rightly high, carries a, a great weight and value for you and for the church as a whole. I want to read again a portion of what I read earlier from Psalm 23, and I want to show you a little bit more about how the Lord's Supper is meant to work for us. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, every time that we come to take these elements, that we come to take the Lord's Supper together, these words should be somewhere kind of rattling around in our head or in our hearts. Even if we don't say them explicitly, these things should be there, that Christ has prepared a table for us. And he has done so in the presence of our enemy. He has done so in the presence of our accuser. The one that would deny you this grace. The one that would tear you down piece by piece and keep you from this table. Satan does not want us to come and share this meal together. It is too powerful. The story is too true. He wishes it were not, but it is. And since he cannot make that story untrue of what Christ has done, he will do his best to make us completely distracted from it and pulled away from it. Yet God sets the table in the presence of our enemy. And when we come and we partake of this meal, he has to... Our enemy has to look and watch what we do when we do this together. Now, he would relish what the church in Corinth was doing because it was creating division. He was using the very thing that was supposed to bring us together and, 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 and forcing it to cause division. But when we come and we take this together, and we soberly reflect on our sin and our forgiveness at the cross... Satan is forced to look upon us and know the truth of the gospel and know what God has provided for us in his son. He has provided for us a hope for our rebellion, a meal better than the one that Satan deceived Adam and Eve with. To paraphrase another pastor, in the cross 
take and eat becomes not our condemnation, but now our salvation. And here's what I want you to see as we kind of close and we kind of wrap this up today. And I'll bring in our discussion about baptism from a couple weeks ago and let this kind of fill in a few more gaps for us as well. It's fascinating to me that Jesus does not give us a creed here. He doesn't have to give us the Lord's Supper to, to do. He doesn't have to give us baptism as an act that we do. He could just give us a creed, something to recite, right? This is effectively what uh, a whole generation of Christians made the sinner's prayer. You pray the sinner's prayer, you are now entered into heaven. He could have given us a prayer like that, but he did not. He could have given us a creed to recite that we could recite together every week. Many churches do recite some of the historic creeds of the church. But that creed is not a creed that is when they get strictly from Jesus. He doesn't give us a creed to say, recite these words and you're in heaven. Recite these words and you're reminded every week. He gives us something to do, an act to participate in. He has us go through the waters of baptism. He has us come and take the bread and the juice. So why does he do that? Why does he give us those things? There's a lot we could talk about here, but I want to talk about just a couple of things. One, these two things work hand in hand together. If you'll remember, uh, 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 I don't know, two years ago at this point, when we started First John, I talked about the difference between union and communion. Union, and the example I use is that, that Emily and I are married. We have a union. If I were to travel somewhere halfway across the world and I were to be in China for the next six months, that union is not broken. We are still married. But now, because we see each other every day, because we are around each other, we also have communion. We interact with one another. We work together with one another. We live life together. We have communion. But if I have to travel halfway around the world and then I'm not able to talk to her for six months, that communion is broken. The union still stands. Communion is broken. Baptism and the Lord's Supper represent those two things. Baptism is the representation of the union that we have with Christ. So when we are baptized, we are stating we are in Christ, we are baptized into him, and that is unbroken. The Lord's Supper is meant to be done repeatedly, over and over and over. Because in it, we are, in effect, in conversation with Christ. Our communion is increased as we take these elements. The communion is brought back and our, uh, our fellowship is increased together as a church and with Christ as we keep on doing this perpetually until he comes, is what it says. So union and communion represented with these two sacraments that we have. We remember his death. We remember that in our baptism. And then our union is solidified with him. And then we remember his death ongoing in communion with him through the Lord's Supper. I think God is also trying to make another point to us as well. And this will be where I end this morning. The things that he gives us are simple. Water, juice, bread, flour and water together. 
simple, simple elements. No creed, no song to sing. He didn't give us a video. He didn't give us a hologram that we could uh, project and that he could uh, recite to us every week. He could have done so. He could have come back and, and, and whenever that technology would, or he could have come the first time and whenever that technology was created, or he could have had that technology be created when he was there that first time. He could have given us those things. But he chose not to give us those things. In God's sovereignty and wisdom, he gave us juice, flour, and water. Very, very ordinary things. Very simple things. Things that have been used since the beginning, since the creation of this world. But God takes these ordinary things and he changes them. And he makes them something more than what they are. He changes their meaning. He changes their purpose and what they're used for. He changes them and then uses them for our growth in grace, for our increased holiness and that we might glorify him in that. Simple, ordinary things. Listen, there's a hundred ways you can apply that truth. But if you remember nothing else about this sermon, I want you to remember this. God uses simple, ordinary, everyday things to bring about extraordinary, miraculous things. He does it every day. He does it with bread, with juice, with water, and he does it with me, and he does it with you. We are way too quick to dismiss, dismiss our lives and our work as meaningless, as unspectacular, as not all that helpful. We look at celebrities, we look at people with money and with power and influence, and we think maybe God should use them, not us. But very explicitly, Paul tells us that he will use the exact opposite of that. He will not go after the rich and the powerful and the wealthy. He will go after the poor and, the, and the, those that are, are downtrodden. He will go after the most ordinary of ordinary. And it will be those that he uses to change lives. That's just not how God works, to go after the spectacular and to use the spectacular. He can and at times he does. But the vast majority of time, the work of God is done by the ordinary people of God. Ordinary things, ordinary people, miraculous results. He chooses these things that no one expects to do the things that no one can do. And I think you'll find the more you rehearse your baptism, the more you go back to that, and remember that. The more you take of these elements, and the more you retell yourself the story of the gospel, the more you retell yourself of your own sinfulness and of the forgiveness and mercy found at the cross, of the body broken and the blood spilled, the more that you do this, the more you will come to cherish this story. The more often it happens, the more this story will take root in your heart and in your soul. And the more you rehearse this story, the naturally the hero of the story will grow even bigger in your mind and in your heart. 
The more you partake of this meal, the deeper the communion with Christ will be. And I'm convinced that once you truly know the power and the story and the grace represented in these elements, then there is no other meal you'd rather eat and no other people you'd rather eat it with than those that celebrate the forgiveness of Christ alongside you. For it is this meal, it is the bread and the juice that we are about to consume that unites us, that bonds us, and it is the story found in these elements that we will sing about for all eternity. There is no meal that can compare. There is no temporary thing that we can consume that will prepare our hearts for that. But in this meal, we prepare our hearts for eternity. And so we're getting ready to, I'm going to pray here in just a second. We will end uh, we will end this this morning. As we get ready to take these elements, again, I'll remind you, this is going to be for Christians only, for those that are following Christ. But I invite you to come with me, to join together, join our hearts together, not just in song, but in taking of the Lord's Supper. I'll quote what we sang earlier, and then I'll tell you the table is open as the band comes to sing. Magnify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name together. Glorify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name forever. That is what we would do at this table. Let us pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would show our unworthiness to us. that we would not run from that as we see that, that we would not distract ourselves as we, as we know that, that we would not somehow uh, move our minds and our hearts to some different place and start thinking about what we have going on the rest of the day, but instead that we would be drawn to our unworthiness. And as we are drawn to our unworthiness, that we would not run from these elements, but we would run to these elements. And that we would celebrate the grace that you have shown us in the death and resurrection of your son. Father, we thank you that these simple elements, these ordinary things, tell an extraordinary story. I pray that you would write that story on our hearts. pray that you would plant that story deep in our soul and that day by day Sunday by Sunday Lord's table by Lord's table you will transform us to be a people that glorify you celebrate your goodness in our lives In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Come, let's exalt his name together.